Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of money managers were extremely bullish on stocks going into the new year. But not our guest today on the Gains Podcast. He has a stark warning for investors and also makes the case for a long-term secular bear market. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Gains. All right, let's bring on Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at macrotides.com in San Diego. Jim, always great to have you on the Gains Podcast. Always uh, great to join you. want to wish you, uh, Andy, a, a healthy and happy new year, and as well as all the listeners. And give those listeners of the Gains Podcast a special <laughs> late cur- belated Christmas gift, New Year's sure. gift. Uh, lay it on them. Yeah, well, send me an email, uh, jimwelshmacro at gmail. And I will send you one or two reports that I think you'll find interesting. Andy and I, I think I'm going to touch on some of the subjects. Uh, but Jim Welsh, Macro Gmail, I'm happy to send you a, a recent report. Yeah, and you plugged that we were going to talk about that, and we are. I mean, let's start <laughs> with kind of a little rough beginning of the year for markets. Um, you look at the fundamentals. You look at the technicals. Uh, what are you seeing as we've kicked off 2024? Let's start there. Well, I think the economy is, is going to be okay in the first part of this year, Andy, for a lot of different reasons. The unemployment rate is near a 50-year low. Wages are growing nicely. The consumers still have something in savings and so forth. So there's no reason to expect the economy to slow right out of the box. I do believe that as we approach mid-year, the economy is likely to slow markedly, especially in the second half of this year. In terms of the market, I I felt that we would see a decline uh, early this year, just as uh, investors who owned the mega cap stocks, uh, which had a great run in 2023, that they would wait until 2024 to take some profits because that then would delay tax uh, burdens into April of 2025. So some of the weakness I think we've seen, Andy, in the first week or so was really related to that activity. Interesting. More than else. So you're okay. saying this weakness at the beginning of the year has a lot more to do with taxes uh, than anything else. Yep. I mean, I uh, put out. You're a not alone in saying that either, too. I, I, I talked to somebody else who. Uh, it told me the same thing today. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I put out a report December 29th, basically addressing that we were likely to see a pullback. The pattern in the S&P, as you know, I look at patterns and technical analysis. 
suggested that we would see the S&P decline below, uh, there was a low on December 20th at 46.97. And I felt that we would see the S&P decline in the first part of the year below that low. And in fact, last Friday, it got down to 46.82. I think what comes next is more upside. As long as that 46.82 remains intact, my expectation, Andy, was we'll see a dip and then a move to a higher high, in other words, a new all-time high above 48.18 in the month of January. So that's that has been my outlook. The uh, rebound yesterday, you know, added some, um, if you will, confirmation to that. Uh, so so far, it's, you know, the market's kind of been following the script. And then, as far as you know, we'll see a bit of a comeback, but. Longer down the road, though, and and we've talked we talked about this briefly before about a month ago, seventeen year cycles. Let, let's talk about kind of what you see down the road a little bit, and it's got twenty twenty four in 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 its target. <laughs> it does. Yeah, explain. Yeah, well, obviously we all remember two thousand seven. The S and P made a very significant high, and then we entered into the financial crisis, and the S and P dropped over fifty seven percent. In 1990, there was a peak. Saddam went into uh, Kuwait. The S&P dropped over 20%. 1973, 17 years, obviously, prior to 1990, uh, a two-year bear market that shaved about 50% off the market. 17 years uh, from 73 is 56. There was actually two declines that took place. Ultimately, it was more than 20%. And finally, back in 1939, uh, as World War II began, uh, there was a significant decline in 1939 and 1940, again, more than 20%. So I think there's a high probability, Andy, that we will see a high in uh, 2024, and that will lead to a decline of more than 20%. Um, so I think there are reasons for that. There's optimism is really, really high. People entered 2024 being very, very bullish. The idea being, oh, we're not going to have a recession. Earnings are going to be up 12%. And to top it off, the Fed's going to cut the funds rate six times. That's about as good as it gets, you know, in terms of coming up with a scenario. So with a bar that high, it makes it easier for maybe the data points to come in and not be as good. I think people are completely out to lunch in thinking that the Fed's going to cut the funds rate six times this year. So that's where I think the disappointment comes in. And if I'm right, we'll see, a, a, as I said, a move above 48.18 uh, in the month of January. And then I think we'll likely see at least a five to, pardon me, three to five percent pullback sometime in the first quarter as you know, Wall Street has to reconcile. Oh, we're not going to get that rate cut in March. Oh, we're not going to get six rate cuts. I think that leads to some disappointment. So that is the backdrop. Um, that I think sets the market up for at least a modest pullback uh, in the first few months. If I'm right about the economy slowing materially by mid-year and after, Andy, you know, that really gets into, oh, my gosh, we're not going to see earnings go up 12 percent. So that's where I think the real risk comes in for the market. And then lastly is geopolitical. As I mentioned, 1939, uh, 1973 was the oil embargo. 1990, Saddam invaded Kuwait. So we've seen geopolitical issues, primarily, uh, you know, more often in the Middle East, 
but those types of things, uh, you know, cause big time problems. So if I'm right, the economy slows as we get into the middle of this year. It won't take much of a shove from some piece of negative news to tip the, the economy into a recession before the end of this year. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of volatility. Uh, that 17-year cycle suggests that investors should really uh, be paying close attention because I think we're going to see uh, a meaningful decline, probably that encompasses not just 2024, but potentially 2025, especially if the economy goes into a recession. Well, and the one thing that struck me this year when we were talking to a bunch of people who were giving their forecasts um, you know, for 2024, everybody seemingly was very, very optimistic. I mean, we had a, a couple, you know, slight concerns, but the sure. con- that really sent the contrarian in me. Uh, it, it got me a little worried because sure. yep. people at the end of 2023 going into this year were very, very optimistic optimistic about stocks and you know i think some of it was there was a lot of momentum at the end of last year but uh the contrarian in me is like oh that's that's kind of a scary sign when when you have so many people optimistic thoughts on that yeah no you're 100 percent right I, I think uh it's one of the toughest things to learn to be a contrarian uh you have to have the antenna to recognize when sentiment is overly bullish or as we saw just in last October and the October of a year ago, you know, sentiment was extraordinarily negative in terms of people expecting, a, a, you know, a recession and so forth. So, you know, when you see extremes in sentiment where every article you read is either positive or negative, you know, you're probably close to a turning point in the market. Uh, for me, then it means looking at technical indicators to try to pinpoint when momentum is beginning to fade and reverse. And so, you know, to get meaningful declines, investors need a reason to sell. You know, we can look at optimism and say, oh, wow, okay, people are too many people are bullish. But if no reason to sell materializes, Andy, the market is only going to pull back three to 7% historically. To get a much bigger decline, uh, you're going to have to have something that comes along that surprises institutional investors, in other words, something contra to whatever the narrative they've been running with, uh, that makes them think, wait a second, maybe the economy isn't going to avoid a recession, and that leads them to do selling. So I I think we have a high coming this year. I think potentially we can have some weakness, as I said, in the first quarter, and then maybe some additional rebounds in the second quarter before the technicals really you know, kind of throw off the alarm bells. Uh, the AD line has been behaving relatively well. That has typically been a warning sign where you get a, a decline in the market. The S&P then goes up to a higher high, but the advanced decline line makes a lower high. That's what happened in November, December, and January of 2022. And it was one of the reasons I thought we'd see a, a 10% decline in the first quarter of 2022. That is not in place yet. So normally that there's a lead time of at least several months to six months when you get those divergences. Same thing happened, by the way, in 2007. Uh, as the S&P made a new all-time high in October, uh, the advanced decline line had peaked in the summertime, it failed to make a higher high in October 
another warning sign that the market was in trouble. So historically, the advanced decline line has been pretty helpful in identifying when that level of vulnerability has increased to a point where you have to really uh, batten down the hatches. You know what? I wanted to get back to this 17-year cycle real quick because I, I just find that very interesting. And it, it kind of it gives us a warning for the second half of this year. What's behind that 17-year cycle? I mean, you know, it, it's it's weird that something like that yeah. happens every 17 years. You know, it coincides with a geopolitical event um, and, and, and certain conditions. And what do you think's behind that? Let's, let's delve in that just a little yeah. further and, and just, you know, just talk about why is that valid? Why is that a valid yeah. 17? I mean, that's an obscure thing, 17 years. It really cycle. is. It really is. But at the same time, the cicadas show up every 17 years. <laughs> Chicago. That's true. Well, that's no. true. Okay. So there are things that happen in nature, um, that, uh, are kind of inexplicable in a way, uh, and, but you raise a good question, and it's one of those things where I don't have an answer for it. Because if you look back, there have been numerous different reasons why you got a peak and then a subsequent decline of more than 20 percent. Often, uh, like in 1956, the Fed had been raising rates. 1973, Fed raising rates. That wasn't really the case in 1990, but it was the case in 2007. And obviously, we've seen the Fed been raising rates um, you know, over the last 18, 20 months. So uh, there's a lot of different reasons. And so to me, it's one of those things, one observes something like this, and then one wants to pay attention to, as I said before, the underlying health of the market, because if that's going to repeat, there will be signs. In other words, the, as I said before, the advanced decline line will typically start to weaken before uh, the market becomes more vulnerable. We already have some important pieces in place, Andy. If you look at things like the Russell 2000, which rallied significantly from its low in October, but it's way below where it was in November of 2021. Uh, Same way with the value line composite, the S&P equal weight. So we have this divergences between some of the major market averages, which has also been another telltale sign prior to significant bear markets. Now, again, we're going to need a reason for institutional investors to sell. And, you know, the Fed not raising rates, or pardon me, cutting rates in March and maybe only cutting rates three or four times and not the six. Hey, that's a little bit of a disappointment. But if the economy holds together, it's not the type of thing that would cause, a, you know, a decline of 20 percent or more. So to me, one has to look for something larger. I think we're going to get fooled by the lag time of things like the inverted yield curve, the lag time with the leading economic indicators. Uh, I'll go back to the inverted yield curve. In 2022, in the first half of last year, everybody is, oh, we're going to be in a recession because the yield curve inverted. But if you go back to the 1950s, Andy, the average lead time between an inversion and the onset of a recession was 19 months. Yeah, we, we, we've been talking about that almost for two years now. Well, uh, guess what? Yeah. January of 24 is 19 months. And here we from are. When the curve inverted in July of 22. So last year, 85% of economists were worried about a recession. Now, 32% are worried about a recession. So we've seen a huge shift in, if you will, psychology. And people are just less worried about a recession at a time that I think 
Um, the risk of a market slowdown with at least one quarter of negative GDP, I think the risk is high. Lending standards is something you and I have talked about uh, frequently. Um, that's a big deal. When small businesses can't have access to credit or the amount that they're paying above and beyond what the Fed has raised, the fund rate, funds rate, 500 basis points, but typically banks then increase the spread. So for a lot of small businesses, access to credit, the cost of credit is really starting to bite. They'll, again, there's a lag time. Somebody has a loan that took out 12, 18 months ago. Well, they've only maybe the last six months had to deal with the new terms, if you will. So these are the things that just take time be, before they really work their way through the economy. And, uh, another one for you is yep. commercial real estate. Uh, there's yeah. a big, huge lag. I've been thinking about this for quite some time. And commercial real estate, uh, there's going to be a coming to Jesus moment on that as well. No, hey, we're going to we're going right. to take a quick break. Hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. I've been told that's podcast gold. Would totally appreciate the sal- solid there. And as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new gains episode drops. We drop gains episodes on Wednesday mornings. We'll be right back with Jim after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Back with Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at macrotides.com in San Diego. Uh, as we were heading into break, we were talking inverted yield curve. Um, you know, there's been warning signs for nearly two years now, and we're coming to that point where uh, the inverted yield curve uh, is no longer an outlier. And so let's just let's let's delve into that and the economy and some of the things that we see in the back end of the year. Uh, explain the uh, inverted yield curve real quick. Uh, we were talking about that before the break, but just kind of go into that with a little bit more detail, Jim. Sure. Very simply, it means short-term rates, let's say one-year, two-year yields, are below the 10- and 30-year Treasury yields. So you have an upward slope in terms of the yield curve. It inverts when the short term, the one and two year yields, rise above the 10 and 30 year. And it's a reflection, obviously, of the Federal Reserve increasing the federal funds rate, in this case, it was from like 0.25% uh, to 5.5%. And Treasury yields did not go up uh, similarly. So the short end of the curve 
is above the long end, and that's where you get an inversion. Um, and it's a sign, obviously, of the Fed tightening policy. Um, and historically, that has ramifications. You know, think about it. Uh, car loans, personal loans for consumers, they're all tied to the prime rate, which, is all, which are all tied to the Fed funds rate. So that's why tightening and an inverted yield curve has historically always resulted in a recession. It's just the lag times vary somewhat significantly. And the other thing I'll add is consumers had a lot of money in, in excess savings. You know, for a while, couldn't go out and spend money in 2021. Right, built that savings up, and, yep. and, they've, and the they've been distributed lit- a lot of money. Yep. And so the, there's been a cushion that people have had to be able to fall back on in terms of, okay, I want to go on that trip. Okay, I'm going to tap some of that excess savings, and they can do it. Or let's go out to dinner tonight. I know we went out last Friday, but let's do it again. They're going to run out here soon, and I think that soon is going to be sooner than than later. It's coming. I mean, it's not inexhaustible. Not yet. Because spending has been growing faster than uh, savings. So slowly but surely, um, you know, it's being whittled down. Um, but things like the labor market, you know, uh, holding together also postpones it a little bit. But the labor market is like the last thing to go because most businesses, especially small businesses, they're going to resist letting an employee go until they can't take it anymore. In other words, sales are, have weakened enough. They have to cut costs. And they'll finally, okay, I got to let somebody go. Right, because that's an expensive thing. I mean, training somebody and getting an employee up to speed, those businesses, that's the, you know, it's that final draw. And then they have to let the the person go. But uh, they don't want to do it because the, you know, the cost of getting them up to speed and training them initially is a big investment. You don't want to let that investment go. But at some point, if... If there's so such a decline in sales, you know, you, you, pull you don't it. have a choice. Yeah, you don't. You know, it's kind of like, OK, I got to keep the doors open. And the other thing that that inclination, which has always been there, you know, is magnified, Andy, because over the last couple of years, a lot of employers struggled mightily to find yes. qualified mm-hmm. workers. So after going through that experience, they're going to wait even longer. So I think it really comes down to when we see the economy really downshift in the next three to six months, that means revenue growth for a lot of small businesses will begin to, you know, approach the zero line. And that's really when the pressure starts to pick up on small businesses in terms of they've already cut back out, uh, overtime hours. You know, that's the first thing that they start doing. And then the next thing is like, OK, I got to let somebody go. So that's why the unemployment rate uh, is a lagging indicator uh, it happens after the economy really slows materially or goes into a recession. And that's when, you know, employers react to that phenomena and are forced to let people go. The other thing that I was talking about before the break, I was teasing a little bit about the commercial real estate oh, um, yeah. issue. And, you know, I've, I say this a lot during this podcast. I often, you know, right, there's a window right behind me where I'm speaking right now and I'm looking, you know, into the Chicago loop. And there are a, I mean, there are a lot of people who have not returned. There are a lot of empty buildings. That's another thing that takes a while to, you know, come to fruition, so to speak. Yep. 
yeah. is the commercial well, real estate. And uh, well, how again, big it comes and, down to loans. Yes. Okay? And explain they, that they got a loan for three years. And now all of a sudden it's time to re up that loan. And yet the building used to have 90% occupancy. Now it's at 60%. Insurance costs have gone up very significantly for properties. And so landlords are in a situation where it's like, I don't have enough revenue. And, and then, then you have tenants who have finally had enough time to get out of leases and aren't re-upping them, too. I'm noticing that where uh, when I walk through the uh, halls of a lot of these businesses where there were restaurants and newsstands mm-hmm. and barber shops and, you know, nail places and all that, I noticed a lot of those businesses were still hanging on throughout the pandemic. Maybe they had their leases. But even in the last, like, three to six months, I've seen a bunch of those businesses that have remained open up until now just be like, yeah, well, this is it. We can get out. I can't out. take it anymore. Yeah, and exactly. so for the, the owners the of those up. properties, you know, they're seeing obviously uh, a revenue decline. There's businesses where, okay, we used to have 5,000 square feet of space. Uh, okay. All we need is 3,500. So they're not, you know, they're not completely leaving, but that's a 30% reduction, if you will, in the occupancy rate. And so what happens and what will happen, Andy, and you're 100% right for kind of focusing on that, is that as those loans come due in the second half of this year, the first half of next year, and I think we're talking about more than a trillion dollars of loans, that a lot of landlords are just going to say, hey, here's the keys. And the banks are going to have to you know, kind of deal with that problem. And um, that, I think, is going to be another shoe that drops at a point in time when the economy I think is likely to be softer than it is now. So it's when you, when the economy weakens uh, and revenue growth slows or turns negative, that's when the greatest pressure is on the weakest hands in the economy. And for uh, office space, uh, that is a real weekend within the commercial real estate area. And I think that's going to hit the fan late this year and into next year. And and, um, and, so. and, and as we're talking about all these things, I mean, you, you've kind of not painted a very good picture for the second half of the year. Give us a quickly, give us a roadmap. How does this play out? How do you play it as an investor? Well, again, I'm using a lot of technical analysis, momentum analysis to try to identify when we see a price peak. As I said, I think the S&P is going to go up, make a higher high. I think potentially we could see the S&P reach 5,200 at some point in time in, let's say, the first half of this year. But what I'm really going to be tuned into, Andy, is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, things like the advanced decline line. You know, we get a pullback of some magnitude. The S&P goes up and makes a higher high, and the AD line doesn't confirm it. Whenever that happens, whether that's in March or May or whenever, that to me will be the real trigger of when to become much more cautious and defensive. Um, but it's coming. In my my view, it's coming because I think – expectations for the economy and for monetary policy are, I think, are just misplaced. So there's going to be some level of disappointment. And if the economy slows, as I think is likely, that disappointment will lead to a big increase in selling pressure. So I just think given the 17-year cycle, people have to become more cautious uh, and careful uh, in terms of 
don't get caught up in all the bullishness. Yeah, I mean, how do you play this? Because a lot of people uh, have heard all these bullish, very bullish uh, forecasts for 2024. What's your advice for the individual investor? Um, Should they start taking chips off the table? Should uh, they be eyeing? You mentioned that 5,200 number. Yep. Uh, should the, is that some place that maybe to dump out? I mean, what's your advice for the individual investor, knowing everything we've talked about today? I think you have to look. If you have individual stocks, you need to look at the price charts of those individual stocks, and when they start taking out a prior low, that's usually a big warning sign that okay, something afoot is happening that isn't good. Uh, same thing goes for the various market averages. So in terms of the S and P. You know, 500. I think getting below 4,600 would not be a good sign uh, for the market. Um, so we're in that place where we're not quite there yet, in my opinion. In other words, we haven't hit the high yet, but it's getting late in the game. You know, um, so I can't give specifics, as you know. I right. Like I mean, it's specifics. it's obviously data dependent, and we're going to see how it goes. But I guess. Right now, being aware of this, and uh, you know, if you have some big gainers, maybe taking a couple chips off the table. And we're obviously going to have you on uh, as we go throughout the year, Jim. But uh, I mean, even knowing this, and and what are those early first steps? Well, the first steps I think is again, um, you just have to pay attention. Don't get caught up with oh, everything's going to be wonderful, um, because that's typically when things become less wonderful. Um, So this is how you become a contrarian, is when a lot of people are bullish, one starts to be more critical and attentive to the market uh, so as you can respond when weakness starts to really manifest itself. So as I said, getting below 4,600, that was the high last July. We struggled a little bit in December uh, and November to get above 4,600. So to me, that, that that was kind of like a ceiling. And it's important now that we're above that ceiling not to go below it because that would be kind of like, wait a second, why is the market breaking down below a level that it it works so hard to get above? And, you know, those are the warning signs that I think people have to pay attention to. And for most people, the idea of technical analysis, it's like they might as well be studying Greek or trying to read Greek. It's difficult. But that's one of the, you know, as every time we talk, I always encourage people become more knowledgeable about technical analysis because um, it's a skill set that can be very, very helpful in managing risk and reducing the size of losses when the market really goes through one of these declines of 20 and 30 percent. And the other thing I'm going to add, I have a piece called the coming secular bear market. And I think there's a real risk that we're going to see a high in the stock market sometime this year. And I think that high is going to mark a high that lasts for at least five to 10 years. Wow. That's or that, that is longer. That okay? is longer. scary. What, what you just said there. So, so uh, I, this yeah. piece, Andy goes into detail of why that's likely. And I'll touch on two things very quickly. So what has happened the last 40 years or so, whenever the economy slows, goes into recession, Congress immediately either cuts taxes or spends more money or both to put money into the economy 
to generate, uh, you know, stall the recession out and reverse the economy so it begins to expand again. Since 1960, in the 1960s, for every dollar of debt that the government uh, borrowed, if you will, it generated 90 cents of GDP. We're now down to 30 cents of GDP. Think about how much debt has gone up since 2007, obviously since 2000. So you're t- you're talking about that debt time bomb that we've been floating around for years and years may come to full fruition here very soon or sooner than later. From a, from a different angle. Right. I'm looking at it not from the interest expense thing is obviously a big deal. I'm looking at it as how much juice do, does deficit spending uh, generate in terms of spurring economic activity. And what's been happening the last 40 years or so is that it takes more and more debt to generate 2% growth. Well, at some point in time, that becomes absurd. Right. You, other, mean, you, you don't have enough money to move to move the needle. Well, it doesn't mean you won't try. But right. at some point in time, uh, there's going to be a problem with Treasury yields. Now, I am of the mind that I think Treasury yields are going to decline um, over the next six months or so as the economy slows. But the response, if indeed we go into recession, will be the typical response of government, and that is to run deficits. But we're already – last year we had you know GDP above 2%. We ran a $1.7 trillion deficit. If we actually go into a recession and the next time that happens, the deficit is going to be $3 trillion or more. And I think we we saw hints of this last fall, Andy, where auctions were not <laughs> participated in and yields went up because there weren't enough buyers. And I think we're finally seeing this awareness of, wait a second, spending in the United States and the levels of debt are kind of getting out of control. And, you know, the willingness of buyers to step up and say, OK, that's I don't have to worry about that. I think we've already seen some hints that that's not going to carry. So my take is we're going to see yields come down, in my opinion, over the next six months or so. Then I think yields are going to go up and go higher than they were last fall. And that's going to be very problematic for you know housing. Uh, obviously, mortgage rates would be severely impacted. Housing is already incredibly, historically unaffordable. So we're getting a little bit of a reprieve because mortgage rates are coming down. Great. Right. But when that reverses, I think, and we go into a recession, housing prices are going to drop, I think, at least 10 to 20% over the next two to three years. So that's another problem that's, again, it's out there. It's out of sight. It's not even on most people's minds at this point. But you, but, but it's, you see it down the road. And this also comes during a year where you had mentioned earlier a ton of uh, geopolitical issues going on right now. Yeah, and then throw a the tipping point. Yep, and then throw a, a a presidential election year in it as well. Well, yeah, I mean, final thoughts here, Jim, as as we wrap up the Gaines podcast. I just think you know, again, I love history. I studied history, um, and I'm normally a pretty optimistic guy. At the same time, I'm trying to keep my eyes open and aware of potentially things that could you know, become really serious challenges, not for just the United States, but globally. And I think we're entering a window of time where some of these things that we've been able to kind of ignore for 10, 20, 30 years, I don't think we're going to be able to ignore them. So if you, again, if you want to read more about this whole idea, 
Uh, send me an email, Jim Welsh, macro at Gmail. I'll send you this report, the coming secular bear market. I got a lot of graphs in there, explanations and so forth. I think you find it pretty uh, uh, informative. And just real quick, Andy, I just want to mention one other thing. The other thing that has been used to forestall recessions is monetary policy. So the Fed would raise the funds rate and increase the real funds rate. In other words, the funds rate was above inflation to slow the economy. And then once the economy slowed and went into recession, the Fed cut rates. Well, since 19, pardon me, since 2000. What we've seen is the Fed dropped the funds rate back in like 2001 down to 1%. It had a negative real rate. In other words, inflation was at 2 to 3%, and the funds rate is at 1%. So it had a negative rate. Financial crisis 2008, the Fed expanded its balance sheet from $700 billion to $4.5 trillion. The pandemic up to almost $9 trillion. So my point is the traditional leverage that monetary policy had over the economy after World War II, up until about 2000, was very effective. Since then, we've seen the Fed, in effect, have to, it's kind of like government spending, do more and more and more to try to resuscitate the economy out of a recession. So the two policy tools that have been used to spur growth and get the economy out of recession have been losing their effectiveness for about 40 years. And to me, what that implies is as we go into a recession, there's going to be another recession. It's just a question of when, not if. The policy tools that have been uh, becoming less and less effective, I think, implies that uh, economic growth can remain weak for an extended period of time. And what that means is higher unemployment. It also means more debt because the government's deficit will be bigger and so forth. So these are just some of the things that I see that are coming together that are going to have, I think, a fairly uh, significant impact on growth over the next decade. A stark warning from Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at macrotides.com in San Diego. Always appreciate the insight. Hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. And as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new Gains episode drops. We drop Gains episodes on Wednesday mornings, and I look forward to seeing you then. A News Radio WBBM podcast, powered by Odyssey. All star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast, it's my passion, it's a cause I started more than two years ago, and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the BIB Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.